0: what you're talking the microphone. You have to be careful of what you do and what you say. We have a great show lined up for you. It's showtime! We're live. One, two, three. And now, our feature presentation.
1: Fast forward to now, and these same Democratic leaders are the ones that are now singing a far different tune. And folks, that's exactly what I call the filibuster flip. The filibuster flip-flop.
0: I think a lot of the Democratic base has not been told or informed of the things that that, that President Biden and, and, and this Congress has accomplished. Democrats whine too much. Just quit being a whiny party. He's got to recognize that when he was elected, people were not looking for him to transform America. Uh, they were looking to get back to normal, to stop the crazy. And, and it seems like we're, we're, we're continuing to see the kinds of policy and promotions that are, are not accepted by the American people. As a matter of fact, he's had a bad year. He's had 52 weeks of, of bad weeks. So.
1: We do
2: spurn fake news.
0: I've never heard him talk about spurn. Um, <laughs> spurn, using that as a word. So, I haven't. Like, have you? I'm personally. looking it up. Okay. Spurn. If morning's Reject. 7. Reject. So we reject fake news. Baby, it's cold. Baby, it's cold outside. Jack Riccardi, 4 till 7. News
2: Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. It is cold outside. Get closer to the radio, warm yourself up around the, as the tubes warm up, you know. No, no tubes? right, 408 on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Jack Riccardi, good afternoon. Welcome to our dreadful little show here in the late afternoon. You know, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the Biden News Conference, so we're not going to. But I, I was thinking a little bit um, last night about how uh, we had gone X number of weeks without a Biden News Conference. Um, he's had fewer of them than his five predecessors in the first year. Um, and, and then what does he do? He comes out, starts out. And decides to to stand there for two hours. I I don't know if he thought this will be a a feat of strength or endurance, or they'll just be so impressed that I stayed for two hours. But it it got worse as it went on, you know? And um, if you remember President Trump, do you remember President Trump? (laughs) If you remember, President Trump was in front of the cameras every day. And... Had a lot of Q&A with reporters. They weren't all formal news conferences. Often he would, he'd work that uh, rope line on the way to the helicopter or he'd, you know, do some walk and talk with them, uh, or the pool spray thing. But he was his own cleanup artist. So he, he, he was, he was verbose and he was bombastic and he was hyperbolic and he would, he would get things wrong and he would overpromise. But he was out there so much that he could fix his own, you know, mistakes or shortcomings. The problem here with Biden, I think, is you go these long periods where you don't hear from him at all, and then he comes out and does the two-hour thing, and it's a mess. And he's not good at it because he hasn't been doing them. And I I just, I, I really question the people around him. What what were they thinking in letting this happen and what are they thinking now about this strategy that 2022 needs to be the year of Joe Biden on the road? Joe Biden in front of more voters, giving more speeches, uh, appearing in more places. Do you really think that that would help? Do, do you really think that Democratic candidates having watched or heard about yesterday want him in their races, want him in their, you know, on their campaign appearances? Now, last night, the Senate did what everyone knew they were going to do. They had the vote on the um, the two partisan election bills, and two Democrats, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, kept their promises to preserve the filibuster and voted against uh, the changes. And until they cast those votes, I have to be honest with you, I was not sure that they would. I know for all the talk and all the rhetoric i I really wasn't going to believe it till I saw it. Well, last night, we saw it Now, I want to talk a little bit about this whole philosophy about election integrity and where it how, how you get election integrity. but first, um one of the things the president said uh that has been so controversial is that he was asked by a reporter. Uh, Speaking of voting rights legislation, if it isn't passed, do you believe the upcoming election will be fairly conducted and its results will be legitimate? Don, do we have that clip? Can we play that?
1: Speaking of voting rights legislation,
0: if this isn't passed, do you still believe the upcoming election will be
1: fairly conducted and its results will be legitimate?
0: Well, it all depends on uh, whether or not we're able to make the case to the American people that some of this is being set up to try to alter the outcome of the election.
2: Okay, so his answer, is, his answer is it all depends. And what it depends on is whether we can spin what Republicans are doing. Now, he gets another chance at the question later in the news conference. A different reporter uh, says, uh, hey, a moment ago you were asked whether or not you believe we'd have free elections and they would be legitimate. Do you think that the results could be in any way legitimate? Oh yeah, I think it could easily be illegitimate, says the president. I'm not gonna, I'm not saying it's going to be legit. He says the increase in the prospect of being illegitimate is in direct proportion to us not being able to get these reforms passed. So let me, let me make this very simple. The message from the president and the Washington Democrats is if you want elections that are fair and results you can believe in, meaning votes count, all the votes that are legit count, fraudulent votes are not counted, ballots are not altered, etc. If you want the election to be credible, you need to shrink and centralize the control of it in Washington. How does that sound to you? How how it just put aside politics and labels and red and blue? Stalin said, and, and Joe Biden often quotes him, but Stalin is the one who said, it's not the people who vote that decide an election, it's the people who count the votes. And whatever else we think of Joe Stalin, that happens to be true. It's the people who count the votes. So why would it be better to have fewer people controlling elections? Why would it be better to centralize control of the elections in Washington? Has anyone ever said the virtuous people are all in Washington, or Washington is the most honest city in our country? Has anyone ever said that? No. In fact, if if what you really care about is election integrity, and, and again, I define that to mean... Every vote that is legit counts. Everyone who is a legitimate voter is able to vote. And no fraudulent or illegitimate or harvested or iffy or questionable votes are counted. If that's what you care about, you want to decentralize elections. You want to spread it out as much as possible. You want to have as many different people in as many different places involved. Think of it like a bank robber. If you were a bank robber, you'd want all the money to be in one bank. Then you could just rob that bank. The worst thing for bank robbers is if there's a lot of banks and they all have just a little bit of money. Because then in order for him to make a living, he's got to rob a lot of banks. If you don't want an election stolen or overturned, you want the votes counted in a lot of places. You want them in states and counties and spread it out. You do not want to make it centralized. You do not want to consolidate it. I don't know how, if anyone just thinks of it that way, how you could possibly make any case for what they're trying to do right now. There is absolutely no rational way giving Washington, D.C. the power to govern or set election rules, which is akin to letting them count the votes, is a good idea. And it isn't even true that in the states that have passed election reforms, it is not true that those states have said, well, we're going to switch out all the people who count and make them Republicans. There's no provision in any of the states that I've looked at where that's the case. There's no provision for an official in that state to overturn the result of an election, to say, well, candidate A got more votes, but we're going we're to uh, give it, we're going to award it to candidate B. There's nothing like that in any of these states, including ours. So if you strip it away, their argument is you can't trust the people in your own state, but you can trust Washington. Does that sound right to you? All right, so look, we were we were as a nation from our beginning, from our founding, we were founded by people who were deeply suspicious of, of handing anything over to Washington. The states came first, right? You learn about it in school. The 13 colonies, the 13 states. The states come first. They form the union. We have the ratifying conference for the Constitution. The states are very uh, jumpy and skittery about that. And they need to be reassured that even though there's going to be a government in Washington, there's going to be a president, and there's going to be a Congress, we're not going to take powers away from the states. We're not going to take over the affairs of the states. The only reason the original states ratified the Constitution, the only reason you and I are sitting here today, is because they were assured you'll never have to worry about that. So they didn't trust Washington. Nothing in your lifetime has made you more trusting of Washington. Nothing Washington's doing these days, either party, warrants us trusting them. And yet the whole premise of the Democrat election bills is that if you're worried about elections, let Washington run them. That makes zero sense to me. Zero. And if you are worried about the Texas laws, or if you think Texas has made mistakes, and I do think there are some mistakes in the Texas laws, and we talked about it the other day with Gilbert Garcia, but the the remedy for that is in our legislature. The remedy for that is right here. 210-599-5555, 210-599-5555, and Patrick is on KTSA. Patrick, good afternoon.
0: Well, centralization is the cancer for everything as far as government goes. Joseph Stalin, in my recollection, said that it's not important who votes. It's important who count the votes. And in Venezuela, that is their modus operandi. That's what they do. They have full control over who gets to count the votes. The idea that you would decentralize or that you would want to centralize voting and taking taking it away from the different states is ludicrous. Mm-hmm. And the the way that the Democratic Party is going right now, uh, they might as well just get a hammer and sickle and fly it on their flag.
2: Well, I think they're counting, and I I, I agree with everything you said, Patrick. In fact, I think I said everything you said, but I, that's okay. I appreciate your call. I, I I do think the premise here is that they just don't think people will think of it this way. What they'll think is well um i'm let's say I'm a Democrat, and I live in Texas, and uh, you know, not getting my way on anything right? They have a Republican governor, they got a Republican legislature. Uh, I don't like what they're doing, I don't like their policies. so I don't trust them, therefore, who would I trust? well, maybe maybe the guy's in Washington, but if you just stop and think, even if you are a Democrat here in Texas, if you just stop and consider how corrupt and crooked Washington's DC is and if you know your history and you know that we were founded with this this don't do it mistrust of centralization like Patrick said um, they'd have no chance on this and by the way what happened last night was a bipartisan agreement to not do it I don't know wh- where I, I don't know where you come from but wh- where I come from if something is voted on and garners the votes of Democrats and Republicans, that makes it bipartisan. Only Democrats voted for the Democrat election bills. Democrats and Republicans, two Democrats, voted against them. The president also said uh, at his news conference, my plan cuts the deficit and boosts the economy by getting more people into the workforce. But every objective review from the Congressional Budget Office to the penn Wharton budget model says the opposite. says that uh, the Build Back Better Act adds trillions to the deficit if its programs remain permanent and billions to the deficit if they don't. But if they don't remain permanent, then they don't work. If they are only in place for a year or two, they don't do even the things they promised to do. We we know from the penn Wharton model that the GDP goes down and wages go down and employment goes down with Build Back Better. The president was asked about inflation. He said inflation has everything to do with the supply chain. Well, the supply chain is broken, but that's not the only reason we have inflation. And you and I have talked about this. Inflation is always a function of government policy. Always. And even uh, two of the leading economists under President Obama Steve Ratner and Jason Furman have recently come out and said they think that uh, Biden's American rescue plan was too big and it led to inflation. And then he was asked if, or he asked the question rhetorically, did any of you think that we would get to a point where not a single Republican would, would diverge, meaning break away and join me? And somebody reminded him, and it's a good point, you served under Barack Obama. You you knew that radical left policies would consolidate and, and unite the Republican Party. You're also the successor to Donald Trump. And the Republican Party under Donald Trump has assumed a, a populist, working class model. I don't know how sincere they are about it. I'm not saying you should put your faith in them, but you can't not know what you're getting coming into office one year ago today. And he also glosses over, when he says that, the fact that there actually are Republicans and Democrats working together on a lot of things. I don't like all of it, but there's a lot of it going on. On immigration, on spending. There's a bipartisan group of House and Senate Republicans and Democrats that are trying to do a piece of election reform that actually does make sense. And it cleans up what's called the Election Control Act of 1887. It's not federalizing elections. It's not uh, doing away with the Electoral College. It's cleaning up something that's been kind of screwed up for about 140 years. And he was asked about the George Wallace Bull Connor comments. And he wiggled and wriggled and said, no, I didn't say that. Didn't you hear what I said? He even told a reporter, maybe you don't understand English, or maybe you didn't learn English very well in school. But this was the quote from Joe Biden nine days ago in Atlanta. I ask every elected official in America, how do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? He denied saying that nine days earlier, and they let him. Um, but, you know, the the most interesting thing about yesterday was that they thought they could pull it off. And they actually think more of this will be better for him and better for the country. What do you think about that? Um England has announced, effective immediately, that people don't have to work from home anymore, that uh, vaccine uh, passports, mask mandates are all ending. Uh, The requirement for school pupils to wear masks during class also being removed. England is doing all of this right now. Take a listen. So, the once regulations lapse the government will no
3: longer mandate the wearing of face masks anywhere yeah. mr speaker from, from tomorrow from tomorrow we will no longer require face masks in classrooms yeah. and the department yeah. and the department for education will shortly remove national guidance uh, on their use
2: in communal areas now uh, that was uh, bojo prime minister boris johnson now, the cynics will say that he's doing this because he's in a lot of trouble right now. We told you this the other day. He, he's been busted for having gone to a, uh, m- you know, a party at 10 Downing Street, uh, albeit in the garden behind the building during the height of Britain's 2020 pandemic restrictions. He's in so much trouble that members of his own party are calling on him to resign as the leader of the party, which would mean he was out as prime minister. But here, here's what's interesting. Even if that is the motivation, even if this is a total political save my ass kind of move, he's still doing it. He's throwing science to the wind. And people are cheering. What does that tell you? By the way, um, they said something interesting in making the announcement, not in that speech we just played, but, uh, in the, um, Statement from his government, they used the phrase, we have decided to trust the people. Wow. I'm so old, I remember when we used to get trusted for a lot of things. We we were trusted to make hundreds and thousands of decisions every day. And somehow, most of us made it through the day. What do you think? 210-599-5555. This is a very interesting story. I, I can't honestly tell you I know what's going on here. Uh, the FBI raided the home and the campaign office of Henry Cuellar today. They went into, uh, he lives in Laredo, member of the San Antonio congressional delegation. And they went in and, uh, Texas Tribune says they went into his home and then went into his campaign office. His statement from his office says that they are fully cooperating with any investigation. Uh, no one is quite sure what. Prompted this, but they took several large bags of stuff out, including computers and files. Went on all day into the night yesterday. I I don't want to traffic in conspiracy theories, but it's hard not to wonder. Henry Cuellar is a Democrat, but he is a Democrat in the mold of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. He is a Democrat that goes counter-contrary to the D.C. Democratic Party when it comes to his issues. So he's been calling out his his own party on immigration, for example. And y- y- it's hard not to wonder, given the weaponization of the IRS and the FBI, it's hard not to wonder if he isn't being punished or if he is being used to sort of warn other democrats because now think about what happened last night last night president biden wasn't defeated by the republicans he was defeated by two democrats and you can imagine right you can imagine all the different um levers and leverages and and tools and and threats and deals imagine the things that were offered to and threatened against cinema and mansion and they they did what they said they were going to do they've been saying it for months and last night they did it if you're the democrats today you have to make sure no one else is getting that idea no other democrat and think of all how many democratic congress critters and senators there are in red or purple states who are now thinking you know the wheels are coming off The guy looked like a train wreck last night. Uh, His agenda has stopped dead. His poll numbers are historically low. Harris's numbers are even worse. Think how many other Democrats are contemplating bolting. They're not going to leave. They're not going to join the Republicans. They're just going to start being mavericks. And so maybe Henry Cuellar is sort of a, you know, Gee, it would be a shame if anything like this happened to you, warning to them. 210, I don't know. I mean, on the other hand, maybe he did something. I, I really don't know. But it, I have to wonder about that, the way things are right now. 210-599-5555. Jack Riccardi on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Today is the one-year anniversary of the president being inaugurated. And so we're asking you today on the JR Poll, powered by Stevens Roofing, has President Biden been what you expected a year ago? Uh, whether you voted for him or not whether your expectations were high or low have you gotten what you expected you and we were going to get um you know one of the one of the questions i do get a lot and uh we 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 really don't talk about this on the air a lot because it's just so far off in the future but when people are kind of shooting the breeze or i meet people and uh they find out what i do one of the most common questions people have is, is Trump going to run again? And I've thought about this. I think about it a lot. Because even though the 2024 election is a long way away, and, you know, again, a lot could change, um, the way things are going right now forces you to kind of peg your hopes on that election. So at times I'm sure that he's going to run, and then other times I'm sure that he's not going to run. But I've kind of come around to this thinking, and I want to hear what you think, but th- this is kind of where I'm at. If you want to know whether or not Donald Trump is going to run again, you have to know whether or not he thinks he is a shoe in Because Donald Trump doesn't just want to run for president, he wants to be welcomed on a big red carpet, right? He wants to be uh, given... a a guilt-edged invitation. And he might get it. That might be what Republicans decide they want. But when he gets sort of petty and takes shots at Ron DeSantis like he did the other day about the booster thing, that tells me that he's not really sure he can win the renomination of the Republican Party in 2024. And... Ron DeSantis would be the reason he couldn't win it. I mean, there may there will be other people who will run. There'll probably be a lot of people who run. But I think the way to the way to understand what he's doing is to gauge whether or not he thinks he can just get it. And if it's not a, if it's not a sure thing, if he's not looking at numbers that indicate oh you'll waltz right in, and I'm not saying that he wouldn't campaign. I know he'll do the rallies and and so forth. He'll work. But he wants the party to come to him and say, you were right, we're sorry, we we won't even, you know, just please take it. And I don't think that's going to happen. And he gets very resentful of Republicans that are not deferential to him. And Ron DeSantis, I guess in his mind, is not deferential to him. You know, I think there will be a lot of gratitude, and there is a lot of gratitude what he did. He's given Republicans a new model for their party. It's kind of a um, multi-ethnic working people party. It's a party that, you know, for all the years that Republicans talked about doing outreach and Hispanic outreach and African-American outreach, here comes this guy who everybody calls a racist and a bigot, and he gets those numbers. He gets those voters. All of their much-vaunted posturing and posing and weak hair and Jeb Bush giving bilingual speeches didn't move the needle at all. People laughed. This guy says, I think I know what, what those voters want. I'm not going to pander to them. I'm just going to deliver. And he did. So he gave them a new model, if they keep it, a new coalition, if they keep it, and um it had to be an outsider, right? It had to be somebody that wasn't hadn't drank the Kool Aid and wasn't blinded to the uh to the realities of the world. I, I've told you before, one of the things I've noticed over the years watching the two parties is that it's like a it's like a sports rivalry. Only all of the games for Republicans are away games. Imagine if your favorite sports rivalry was played in such a way so that your team was always the visiting team, always on the other team's field, always playing in front of the other team's roaring crowd. That's how Republicans run against Democrats. And he gave them a way out of that. The funny thing about Trump's victory was I think it was started by a revolt of white working-class people. But I think in 2020, he had... He added to that coalition a lot of angry, frustrated, fed-up Hispanic and black working-class people. And that is now available to the Republicans if they accept it, if they don't fight it, if they don't screw it up. That's a big if. And they have to fight the the battle on the pocketbook issues. So when you heard the the Washington Press Corps yesterday talk a lot about Ukraine, I'm not saying that's not important or it's unimportant or that international affairs don't matter, but that just shows where their heads are at. They they have comfortable lives. They're not as interested in inflation or gas prices or grocery prices because they're not paying them. But the Republicans have to not just fight the culture war, but they they have to fight the war on the economic issues Because that's propelled this new look or this new coalition of the Republican Party. And um, they have to be willing to do things and go places and take positions that are not considered traditionally Republican positions. And they have to be commonsensical about it. And um, I don't think unless he sees numbers that are shoe-in, it's you know all over but the shouting, unless he sees those numbers, and I don't think he will, I don't think he will run. But that's just my guess, and, and I, I say this with the asterisk that we could come back here in a few months and I may say something different. But right now, that's how it looks to me. Right now, that's what I think. 210-599-5555. Now, You know who's pretty sure he's running again are the Democrats. They are not only using him to unite their party, but in New York State, there is an active, aggressive, multi-front onslaught of investigations and prosecutions designed to, if not take down, at least cripple and distract the Trump organization. Because remember that... Trump. Anything Trump does politically starts with the Trump organization. It starts with his his uh, sons and his daughters and their business network. That got kind of subsumed into the political machine over the last five years, but that's that's where he is now. That's what he has. That's what's left. They're working very hard on taking that down. And some of that might just be, you know, Payback or bitterness, I'm sure it is, but some of that might also be, hey, we've got to damage his supply networks, right? When you're, when you're fighting a, an enemy, you don't just fight him on the front lines. You try to bomb his supply depots and his supply lines and his rail lines and his resupply efforts. You try to make sure he can't get stuff up to the, to the troops at the front. So you try to destroy his stockpiles. Well, the, the Trump organization is the, is the, Behind the front lines depot or stockpile for his political machine and they're trying to take it down that tells you that they think he's running or they're worried about it but yeah I think it's I, it, to me it's very interesting in my in my lifetime of and I've been following politics since I was a teenager um, the Republican Party is the most changed I've ever seen it and even Reagan didn't really change it Reagan reflected the voices of people who were in it but had never had the the lead position. He put them at the front of the, the pack. But Trump brought in all kinds of new possibilities, and they're still available to them. What do you think? Two, is he is he running again? Is he not running again? How can you tell? 210 599 By the way, speaking of diversity, I thought this was interesting. I don't know how much play this got. Denzel Washington, the actor, did an interview with um, one of NBC's online news pages. They have like an African-American news site. It's called NBCBLK. So he does this interview, Denzel Washington, and um, he said the following. Diversity should not be mentioned. Diversity should not be mentioned. Good grief. It's like the most commonly used word in the world right now. Shouldn't be mentioned. He says, quote, In my humble opinion, we ought to be at a place where diversity should not be mentioned, like it's something special. These young kids coming up today, black, white, blue, green, whatever, are highly talented and qualified. That's why they're there. So he's saying... If we cared about it, we wouldn't talk about it. And we wouldn't be fixated on the superficiality of it. And you know what that made me think of right away? And I don't know if you've noticed this or not. And I'm not trying to, look, I'm not trying to pick on anybody or start a fight. I'm not bringing this up because it bothers me or anything. When you watch television, have you noticed how self-consciously and almost religiously Ad agencies are casting black actors and actresses in every commercial for every product. And don't get me wrong, I, I don't care and I don't mind. There's probably a lot of people getting work who couldn't get work before, so that's great, but I, it's so over the top, it's comical. I mean, it's fun. I, I, it, you almost have to laugh. They've, they've gone so far in the direction of not wanting to appear undiverse that they have eliminated diversity the other way. You're, you're lucky to find a white face on television. It appears that no one white is buying insurance or going to banks or checking out the new cars or a- any of that. And again, this is not me complaining I, it doesn't it doesn't matter to me and I'm not saying it needs to change. But I think it's what Denzel Washington was talking about. There's something very fussy and superficial when you overdo it. So if we think in the past we were insufficiently diverse, you correct that. You bring it back into into line, or whatever line you think it should be. But when you go totally the other way, It just looks sort of insecure and desperate. And I think to myself, and I I, I know a little bit about this, to know that when a national ad is being written and storyboarded and crafted and they're placing it in wherever it's going to be seen and run, there's a lot of discussion about every aspect, everything, in terms of who the actors and actresses are and what's depicted and the background and how they make the food look or the car look or anything. So all of this is, is done with great intentionality. It's not accidental or coincidental. And it it looks, in in its own way, to me, it looks as bad as if all the faces were white. And you couldn't see anybody that, that wasn't black or wasn't asian or what we're, we're we are a diverse country denzel washington saying we have it we need to stop obsessing about it it's like picking a scab and never letting it heal but that's just me i mean that's how it looks to me 210 599 and the trump question is he going to run is he not going to run uh what's your theory how can you tell we'll talk about those things and many other things and your votes in the JR poll 2105995555. Kind of curious to know what you think about this announcement from the British government too. Just wholesale we're canceling all the uh nationally government mandated uh covid uh, restrictions and mandates um doing that all at once. We're done. Are they caving? Are they trying to Save the political fortunes of their prime minister and his party are they are they are they realizing people are at the the end of this people won't do it anymore we better stop giving orders that people aren't going to you know obey because what what could be worse for any form of government if people are just openly massively thumbing their nose i mean how bad do you look when you're screaming orders, you, you, you know, it's like that that scene from Animal House where the guy's trying to, everything's fine, nothing to see here, you know. It just has that sort of desperation look to it. And so they said, okay, we're doing it all, we're doing it all, and we're ending it all right now. Uh By the way, tomorrow night we will kick off the weekend with the dish in our 6 o'clock hour. We'll have a chance for you to talk restaurants on the dish. That'll be tomorrow night after 6. Coming up later in this hour, uh we did not get all of the... uh Arctic weather that had been called for. We certainly got the temps, but we were spared most of the uh, precip. However, just how much better is the Texas energy grid right now than it was a year ago? We have a guest who can tell us and is going to tell us the truth about that uh, coming up here in about half an hour on 550 and 1071 KTSA. I mentioned um, the government of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, abruptly canceling COVID mandates and restrictions in that country. NBC um, has announced today that they will not be sending any announcers or hosts to the Beijing Olympics, which gets started in just a matter of days. No announcers and hosts. The uh, broadcast teams will work out of NBC Sports headquarters in Connecticut uh, rather than in Beijing due to the concerns about COVID. You know, I'm not a big Olympics guy, and you may care about this more than I do, but um, it just seems like, why bother? I mean, you're having the Olympics in a country that is totalitarian. It's an embarrassment to pretend otherwise. The whole Tradition of the Olympics is the Brotherhood of Man. That's the that's the whole concept, right? That's it's bigger even than the sports competition. Is the Brotherhood of Man competition the Brotherhood of Man concept? But you're having it in a country that puts people in concentration camps. Then you're having it during a time of COVID, and the Chinese government at first said we're not going to sell tickets to anyone but Chinese citizens because we don't want a bunch of people coming in from 190 countries and bringing more COVID into the place where it all started. Then they announced, well, we're not going to sell tickets to anybody, even our own people. So there'll be no one in the venues. And now, the, now the, the sports broadcasters will be basically watching on a screen and narrating for you on a screen what they're seeing. I just don't know, why, why would you bother? at this point. What's left? And I know people train their whole lives, and it's a big, you know, lifetime commitment to have that moment on the ice or that moment on the balance beam or whatever. And I, I'm not trying to downplay that. But it it just seems like they've gone out of their way to go but as far away from what this is supposed to be as you possibly can. It's also really interesting that COVID has made it cool again for countries to think in terms of borders and sovereignty and our own people versus, you know, others. If you go back just a few years, all the the Kumbaya talk was about how none of that should exist we should have a world without countries. We should have a world without borders. We should have a world without any... We, sh- we should all just love one another. And by the way, I love the idea that we would all love one another. It's a great ideal. It is. It really is. a good ideal. But isn't it interesting that the people who were preaching and pushing that and, and, and absolutely positive that if we could just stop the notion of nation, nationalism and they had worse words for it than that. But if we could just do away with nationalism, that old archaic concept, everything would be better. Those are the people who are the most fixated on COVID restrictions. And we don't want people coming to the Olympic Games. And we don't, they have rediscovered nationalism. They don't call it that. They would never admit to what I'm saying. But it's pretty obvious that's what happened, right? That's I mean, pretty clear that, at least in the time of COVID, it's cool to say once again, well, if you're not from here, we don't want you here. Now, it's always been the norm that sovereign nations could say that and did say that. And by the way, immigration policy in, in most of the world is a very subjective thing, meaning you pick and choose, you play favorites, you Think in terms of your own interests, what our politicians have called for, this notion that you know b- bring everybody, let everybody come that's that's out of the norm. The norm is hmm, you want to come in this country, why would we want to let you into this country? What do you have to offer? Mm, I'm not convinced of that. nope, you're not coming in. That was the norm that has been the norm. but covid comes along and all of a sudden now granted not on our southern border because the politics of that are so strong that even even covid couldn't couldn't override the pandering on that one issue on that one border but except for that think about it covid brought back the idea that you use immigration laws and controls to protect to protect your own people. I'm not saying we've done it right or done it perfectly. But I don't ever want to hear again that you oh you mustn't think that way. We mustn't do those things. We mustn't have those things. Cuz I'm going to I'm going to save the receipts from these last 2 years and I bet you are too. 210-599-5555. Gary is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Gary, good afternoon.
0: Good afternoon, Jack. Uh, I was responding to your question about whether President Trump will run again.
2: Yeah, what do you think?
0: I, I, well, I don't know, but I think the first thing that's going to have to happen is that the Republicans, or the uh, yeah Republicans, win the House and the Senate at the midterms. I think if they don't, I think that he uh, there's no chance he'll run.
2: Why would one be related to the other?
0: Well, he doesn't want to take control uh, of the presidency without having the Senate and the House to, you know, support his legislation.
2: Mm-hmm. But, I mean, they could lose it. They could win it in 2022 and lose it in 2024.
0: Yes. Well, yes, of course. They could, they, could, uh, <laughs> they could sure do that.
2: <laughs> I mean, I don't think he can be sure that he would have that uh, as a condition of whether or not he he runs, and he might even have to decide pretty soon just because part of running is getting out there and building up, you know, candidates in these midterms. In other words, is he going to do that? Is he going to be a part of that or not? I I, I would kind of think he has to decide pretty soon, wouldn't you?
0: Yes, and I, I think he's been out there. I think he's supporting various candidates, and, uh, uh, I. but I agree that he... You know he's going to have to stay out there and keep his name in front of people, but he did that in uh, I think in Phoenix not too long ago. so mm-hmm. I think his rallies will will keep okay. going.
2: Yeah, okay. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. 210 uh, 5555 I had said I, I really don't know at the moment, uh, and I go back and forth on this, and I'll freely admit that, but at the moment, um, <clears throat> I'm leaning in the direction of predicting he is not actually going to run. And I think DeSantis and some of the others are bothering him by not being deferential to him. I think they're not being deferential to him because they actually believe either he's not running or we can get past him if he is. So it, it's not, this is not me saying I don't want him to. This is me saying I don't think he's going to. And again, this will all this is all subject to change i think back and it's it's comical really if you go back to uh the year one of every new presidency so like 1993 when clinton is president or 2001 when bush is president or 2009 when obama's president if you look at the people everyone was sure would be their big nemesis, their big, you know, opponent. Oh, this is the one to beat. It, every time it's wrong. Every time. It changes that much. And I remember going into the uh, 2016 election cycle, people thought Scott Walker, who was the governor of Wisconsin, was the shoe-in, was the front, front runner by a ton. Nobody could touch him. You can't find Scott Walker today if you if you put his face on milk cartons. And there's always that false inevitability that comes too soon, too early. So it's it's taught me not to think you know what's going to happen. 210-599-5555. Esteban is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Esteban, good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon. You were talking about all these woke, commercial, with these people of color. It's getting patronizing as all get out. You know, it's, uh I have, I believe that friendships be, should be on common ground. If if a white person says I want to befriend a person of color because they're a person of color, I don't call that white person a racist. You know, uh I look the way I look. I pass for white even though I have a Hispanic heritage. There's some jokes that fly around the internet that I get that some of my other friends don't get. And there's some things that are universal, but when it's so the focus is on race instead of ideas, it's patronizing and it's you know I think it's more offensive that you have all these people all, all these non whites on t v that's almost more patronizing than it than when we had almost all whites on on the yeah
2: I, I I agree and i I wonder how it looks to people of different races. It would be interesting to hear from People, you know, African American people, Hispanic people. I, I just, I, I get the feeling that they might also have noticed that it's, it's almost comically over the top. And again, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not hurting anybody. It just doesn't, it doesn't say diversity. It says insecurity to me. It says that these advertisers are fearful of being Branded or accused of something that that I don't think is, is 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 on our minds. The only time, as as far as I can tell, the only white guys left are in the hair loss commercials and the home security commercials, where they are always the people breaking into the house. That that is still a place you'll see white guys on commercials. But and again, I don't care. I'm not in that business. I'm not trying to get a job. I I just you you can't miss it, and it's like you're trying too hard. You know, it's like. It's like watching somebody um, at a singles bar just trying too hard <laughs> dude dial it down it's too much it's not it's working against you it's not working for you uh feel a little nostalgic today because um it's national d j day which I know is probably not a big deal at your house you probably don't have a special meal planned or anything but uh um, whenever that pops up and I always forget that that's a day until I see it on my Facebook feed or something and then it's, I start thinking about getting into radio and, and all the good things that have happened to me and good fortune in, in, in being able to do this for now almost 38 years. So I, I did want to tell you uh, kind of a story uh, coming up a little bit later on about that. We're getting your votes in on the Stevens Roofing Jr. Poll at 210-599-5555. And when we got the forecast for this weather event that we're having, um, it put me in mind, as I'm sure it did you Of this past February, and um, not only what happened, but all of the, if you could bottle all of the hot air from politicians and utility executives about how they were going to make changes and wake up and it'll never happen again and we're going to be so totally freaking ready next time, you could warm the state just with that. But are we really better off than we were a year ago when it comes to the energy grid? Our next guest knows Jason Isaac is a former state rep, now the director of the Life Powered Project at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He's been on our show many times to talk about Texas energy issues. And Jason Isaac, it's great to have you back, and good evening to you.
3: Hey, Good evening. It's great to be back on the show. I hope you're uh, safe. It looks like we're getting a little inclement weather here in central Texas.
2: We are. We are. Hopefully, uh, it's going to be on the lower end of what had been expected or forecast. But um, I'll put the question to you straight. If we were to get the conditions of last February, has anything materially changed with the Texas Energy Grid and how much?
3: It's been insignificant, but there has been some changes. They've made some improvements in the processes about proving maintenance and operations so that power plants aren't down during February any longer, and that maintenance, routine maintenance is pushed to later warmer or cooler months, not cold months like February has been in the past. So we've seen some improvements. There's some requirements for weatherization, and ERCOT is saying, uh, I think all but two or three of the facilities meet those requirements. Of course, that's just increased cost for those businesses. that gets passed on to ratepayers. and doesn't address the real problem at all. And there's also been some improvements about on-site fuel storage, uh, which is one of the things that coal is great for. We burn it and produce good, clean electricity here in the United States because of pollution control technology, although it's still demonized because the climate industry, the climate cult, uh, are just absolutely opposed to human flourishing and they're trying to kill coal at every chance they can and they've been successful there in san antonio
2: yeah well i was going to say i mean cps is proud of the fact that they're taking coal offline Um, for a lot of us we're just trying to figure out how that could be construed as a benefit
3: (laughs) there's no environmental benefit whatsoever but the elected officials that are appeasing to their virtue signaling self-righteous coastal elites uh, can say Oh, look, we did this. But there's no environmental improvement whatsoever, none, but you do increase unreliable electric generation, uh, and you increase cost significantly. So it, it's it's just appalling that their cities are making these decisions around the country because they're jeopardizing lives in doing so. Uh, they're not good, clearly, at politics. They need to stay out of the electric game as well.
2: You know, you mentioned uh, virtue signaling. It, it is ironic that we have, on the one hand, a lot of voices on the left spinning the story of how we've wrecked the climate of this planet. we've so badly damaged it that weather is now uh, chaotic and unpredictable. But then, in the next breath, advocating for less predictable and reliable uh, you know energy uh, generation so i I, I guess if, if they believe their own sermon wouldn't their behavior be different? Wouldn't they be advocating for things that would keep people safe?
3: oh, they'd be advocating for nuclear energy, but they're not doing that at all because it doesn't fit their control narrative and nuclear produces good, clean, dependable, reliable, affordable electricity. But their climate narrative and this apocalyptic narrative, it's actually not the truth whatsoever. But they've been preaching it on people for decades, and now you've got 20% of the kids suffer from chronic fear of environmental doom uh, because they've got so much time on their hands because of energy. Kids in third world countries spend their day either working, mining cobalt for batteries or walking to collect water. But here in the United States, 98 percent reduction in deaths from climate related events. While our population has more than quadrupled over the last hundred years, There's actually fewer hurricanes last year than I believe in recorded history. The strength and severity of those storms are down. But the left will talk about how bad they are because they cost more because more people are building on coasts. Because they can and they want to, uh, but that's their decision. But when it comes to loss of life and endangering humans, uh, storms and the strength and severity of them are down. We're world leaders in clean air here in the United States. Number one when it comes to access to clean and safe drinking water. Uh, it's, it's just mind boggling and it's, it's unfortunate that people are suffering from this, this disease.
2: We're talking with uh, Jason Isaac from the Texas Public Policy Foundation on KTSA. I I asked you about whether or not the grid was more prepared. Is there any way of knowing statistically whether people have done more prepping or putting in generators? In other words, did that event, which led to a lot of chest-thumping about I'm never going to let this happen to me again, do we know if that changed a lot of people's preparedness?
3: That has, and that's happened around the United States, not only in Texas. You have record sales for generators. If you're in the northeastern United States and you want to buy a wood-burning stove, you can't get it until May. The cost of wood is increasing because people are going to seek other alternatives to keep their homes warm, uh, and that certainly happened here in Texas. I was speaking to someone just a couple of nights ago, showed me a picture of his new— generator that will power his entire home, including his his heating system. Uh, It's a multi-fuel system. But this is unfortunate because that's something that typically wealthy people can afford. But the least among us can't. They can't afford the higher cost of electricity. Greater than one in 10 families will experience a disconnect notice over the next 12 months from a utility because costs have increased. You've got inflation increasing. Uh, These are just, these are bad times when it comes to energy affordability and reliability, and it's because of politicians that started 20 years ago distorting the market, favoring unreliable generation over reliable thermal generation third of our grid now in Texas and it's growing significantly is unreliable generation. It's wind and solar. We're dependent on the wind and the sun to keep our homes warm. uh, And that is actually not a great thing. And costs have gone up at the same time. So we're a lot of wind being produced right now. It's going to drop significantly overnight uh, and cost of electricity will quadruple from the time they are right now uh, to early tomorrow morning.
2: We uh, we talk a lot about electric cars, and the the thing that, that puzzles me is how you can have this frantic uh, push, both from government and from automakers, when there is seemingly no way of explaining how the o- already overloaded grids here and in other places are going to sustain all those newly plugged-in cars in X number of years.
3: No, we can't sustain the newly plugged-in cars. We can't sustain the businesses that are moving here. We're adding unreliable electric generation and no reliable generation. This is the one fix that the Public Utility Commission needs to implement because the legislature balked and said, we're going to give them the authority to do it because we don't feel like doing it. But if you want to put electricity on the grid, you've got to be able to meet peak demand times on demand. So provide electricity when Texans need it. And that applies to all generators, gas, coal, nuclear, hydro, wind, and solar. But the biggest variable sources we have are wind and solar. And they're so heavily subsidized, the prices for wind electricity are negative in South Texas as of a couple of hours ago. That means they're actually paying people to take their electricity because of Mm. the investment tax credits and the production tax credits that you and I are paying out of another Mm. pocket to the federal government. And you can't compete with that. And that's why we're not seeing any new thermal generation being built. If we require these variable sources and the PUC has the authority to do it, to build backup generation so we can have electricity on demand when Texas need it, we will see new, reliable thermal generation yep. being built, likely natural gas.
2: We know how to do it. We just have to have the will to do it. Jason Isaac at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, thank you tonight. Always great to talk to you. appreciate your time. Great to be back on. Um, is it possible to be really bad at the vice presidency and then turn out to be a really good president. In other words, is is there any way that even a very partisan Democrat could could squint and turn their head to one side and say, "Well, I, I know Kamala Harris is is face planting as Veep, but but I'm still confident that she can do the job, the big job, when that time if that time comes." So they sent her out this morning to do some of the cleanup after uh, Joe Biden's. Um, comments on Ukraine and other things. She goes, on the Today Show, which is a very friendly confine for a a, a liberal Democrat, she gets Savannah Guthrie as the interviewer. And it wasn't an ambush interview at all, but Savannah Guthrie was not going to let her coast either. And this is what happened when they asked her about the confusion and the... lack of clarity in biden's answer on putin and ukraine cut number six listen to this
0: there are hundred thousand russian troops
2: amassed at the border with ukraine and people mm-hmm. there are hanging on the president's every word is there any amount of land that russia could take that the president would allow turn a blind eye to not
1: issue those quote severe sanctions he's been threatening for that massive full-scale invasion Our interpretation of any country, in this case, Russia and Vladimir Putin, denying or violating the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine will be interpreted as aggressive action and it will be met with a cost, a severe cost, period. The president said yesterday, among
2: other things, that he thinks that Putin probably will invade Ukraine. Later he said he wasn't sure, but he said he probably will go in. Is that for all intents and purposes, acknowledging that this threat of severe sanctions that the administration has made is having no effect on Putin, that he's actually not deterred by
0: it?
1: Well, I'm not going to psychoanalyze President Putin of Russia, but I will tell you this. It is clear to us that that the, the decision is probably in his hands and we are prepared to take appropriate action based on whatever he decides to do.
2: Hmm. Um, I, 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 and it was funny because they got into a real sort of talking over each other, and you didn't really hear it in that clip, but in other words, they they kind of got, they kind of got testy where, uh, Kamala Harris did her, please let me finish. Are you going to let me fit? Are you interested in my answer? You know, that kind of thing. I, um, again, I, I know people have much bigger things on their plate, and I don't think most Americans are, are fretting over Ukraine at the dinner table, but, it it is remarkable it is remarkable to um hear the President of the United States sort of say, Well, if it's not an invasion invasion, it's just a little bit of an invasion. And then yes, the the, the follow up question from Guthrie about hey, the the threats you're making or the things you're suggesting will befall them are not making any difference is true. So you can say, well, Ukraine, Smukraine." I'm not interested in that. But it, it does speak to the bigger point. Right now, for a country that is certainly the world's most militarily powerful, right now we are being sized up as not willing to or able to or united in uh, using it. And I'm not suggesting, uh, don't get me wrong, I don't think we should have a war over Ukraine. This is a whole big discussion that we would have to have about how we even got into this situation, about whether or not there should still be a NATO. But while you have those things, isn't Vladimir Putin showing the world that uh NATO is irrelevant to him? And isn't he, by extension, also showing the world that the you better watch it or we're going to do X, Y, and Z, is irrelevant to him. And that's where you do have to start to worry, because he's not the only one noticing that right now the tools that this president is willing to take out of the toolbox aren't deterring, aren't cowing anybody. And, uh, and that's why this matters again, even if you can't wrap your head around, well, why would I care or why should I care or weren't th- weren't they all part of the Soviet Union at one time? And he's just trying to put that thing back together again. He's trying to get the band back together again. And that's all true. Uh, but we've laid down as a country some markers and we're not backing them up. That's to be worried about. Today's the one year anniversary of the president being sworn in and, uh, has Joe Biden uh been what you expected a year ago. And and that that's something that you can really answer from any perspective you voted for him, you voted for Trump, you didn't vote for either one of them, you you love Joe Biden, you dislike Joe Biden. I mean, it, has he been what you expected? And um I'll, we'll talk about that and we're going to see how you voted tonight on the poll right before the end of the hour. Uh today's also National DJ Day. National DJ Day I, I read up about it. It, it really came about to commemorate the, the guy who was first given the acronym or the moniker of being a DJ or a disc jockey. Uh, and that was a guy named Alan Freed, who many people think, I'm not sure it's provably true, was the first kind of modern rock and roll radio disc jockey. But he's certainly one of the first. Although it's interesting, I read I read an article about how in 1909... Radio's 100 years old, basically. Okay, commercial radio, over-the-air AM radios, is, is about 100 years old. This station is 100 years old. There's some stations that marked their 100th year last year, but it's about 100 years old. Um, but in 1909, when radio was still experimental and just a technology being played with, there was actually a guy who... Was testing the distance over which these signals could travel, and he had a kid sit in a room and play recorded music. His name was Roy Newby. So maybe Roy Newby was really the first ever disc jockey, just that nobody could hear him. He didn't have bumper stickers, so he didn't have an Instagram page, so who cares? Um, I mentioned at the beginning of the week, we we learned over the weekend that a man named Michael Jackson had died. Not that Michael Jackson, but this Michael Jackson was a radio talk show host for many, many, many years, mostly in Los Angeles. He was on KABC, which was at the time the, the biggest talk station in the country. In fact, at one point, Michael Jackson was the number one billing, meaning the most lucrative radio show In the country. And KABC was the most lucrative radio station in the country. Uh, He was on KABC for 30-something years. He had this incredible career, not only in Southern California, but then ABC built a talk radio network pretty much around their KABC lineup and around Michael Jackson. He was by far the most popular one of their syndicated hosts. All of this happened before Rush Limbaugh. All of this happened before the Fairness Doctrine was lifted in 1987. And the, the thing that changed talk radio even more than Rush Limbaugh was the, the lifting of the Fairness Doctrine, because before the Fairness Doctrine was lifted, you could do a talk show and you could talk about politics, but you, as the host representing the station, had to be extraordinarily careful to not express too much of an opinion. And I remember growing up listening to talk radio, and it was often about recipes or movies or uh, dating advice. The reason for that is that those were things that couldn't get you in trouble with the FCC and with the Fairness Doctrine. When the Fairness Doctrine went, you could do a show where the premise of the show was, I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, I believe in the Republicans, I support the Democrats, et cetera, et cetera, and not endanger your employer's... FCC license. Michael Jackson started before even all that. So he had this incredible career, and he had this incredible life. He was actually from South Africa, or I think he was from Britain, and he lived in South Africa. But he had this accent and this presence that was very unique and uh, made him a un, you know unforgettable voice, a voice that you, as soon as you turned on the radio and you heard that voice, you knew it was him. Incredibly popular, as I said, at one point was the top-billing, most lucrative show in the country. And I was thinking about him this week, and I was thinking about a guy like him that I I knew and I grew up listening to. So he was in Los Angeles. This guy, David Brudnoy, was in Boston. And he was like Michael Jackson. He had started out in talk radio before talk radio was even a term, a thing, a slogan. A lot of stations had talk show hosts maybe at night or at certain times, but they were otherwise music stations. That's how talk radio actually began. David Brodnoy was like that. He had a career that stretched over many decades. He, um, I grew up listening to him on all the big stations in Boston. He... um. Like Michael Jackson, was had a very distinctive voice, sounded very intelligent and um, well-read. Like Michael Jackson, he had a big audience outside the region. Uh, David Brudnoy was on a station that could be heard in about 35 or 40 states at night. And um, when I started thinking about it, I realized these, these were the guys that got me into talk radio. As a listener and then as somebody that wanted to do this someday. But they were not identifiable with the labels that we use today. So today, all talk radio is either conservative or liberal, right? And if you were to say, well, I'm not either one, people would say, oh, you're a squish. What's the matter with you? But the irony is, and I'm not criticizing the way radio is. I'm not criticizing talk radio. I'm not, it's obviously I work in it. I love it. But it's interesting that we're, we're standing on the shoulders of people who did radio shows and had these long illustrious careers without those labels. Michael Jackson was probably, if you heard him, you would probably say he was a liberal or a middle of the rotor. David Brudnoy, if you heard him, same thing. He, uh, late in his career, he said that he had joined the Libertarian Party, and I don't know if that meant he had always been a Libertarian or if he just um, came to them. But it makes me think, and here's where I'm going with this, it makes me think that the way things are now in talk radio and in our country may not be the way they always are because they're not the way they always were. There was a time when people gravitated to talk show hosts because they found them interesting, provocative, um, educational. I, I can't tell you how many people would say the same thing about, in New England, would say the same thing about David Brednoy, I would say, which was listening to him was like, going to school, it was like going to university. It was fascinating. It was eye-opening and ear-opening and mind-opening. I figured out later on how I felt and what I thought about things and my opinions, but just just to learn and, and hear different perspectives. And because there was no label, people would call and express their opinions, and you didn't know if you would be Agreed with, or engaged, or argued with, or whatever, because there was it was all very labelless. We've we've done this to our culture. We've made everything politically categorized, and that's fine. I don't think it'll always be that way because it hasn't always been that way. It's also interesting when I think about Michael Jackson and David Brednoy, um, toward the end of their careers, radio was changing. Michael Jackson was dropped by KABC. He spent the final few years of his radio career bouncing around some other stations in Los Angeles, and then he retired. He had Parkinson's disease. Uh, David Brednoy um, worked as long as he could, but was ill for many, many years and finally passed away. Um and it 's hard to imagine either one of them in radio today the way radio is today, which is too bad because you ought to be able to hear that. I hope you had a chance to hear that or something like it um, and I hope that you will again, and I think you will because again, having being old enough to remember these. Giants and how they made this kind of radio possible. Kind of think it could happen again. If it happened once, it could happen again, right? I I was a DJ when I got into radio because that's what I could, that's what they would let me do. They weren't going to let a a 17, 18, 19 year old kid do a talk show. They probably would now, but they weren't going to do that then. So anyway, I, I worked in music radio and I, I, um, was happy to do it. I had a great time. I can tell you honestly, I was not very good at it. There's no way I would have had a 30-something-year career as a disc jockey. Not nearly good enough to do that. Um, But I I, I kept my eye and ear open for the opportunity, and I hoped it would come, to move over to talk radio. And one day when I was working at a music station in Boston, we had a new manager, and I became friends with him. It was interesting because I thought he was going to be a disaster. I'd heard all these terrible things but he and I have become great friends. We've stayed friends for 30 plus years. And he, he and I went to lunch. He said, I want to take you to lunch to to meet David Brudnoy. He knew that I had heard him. I'd never met him. And he knew him because he had previously managed that station. So we went to this little place on Boylston street and we met David Brudnoy for lunch. Um, I've met a lot of people that you would have heard of before you've, heard me meet some of them on the radio, there's never been anything more intimidating to me than having a conversation in person with David Brednoy. And he had already been on the radio for many, many years, and he would have many more years to go. He could talk about anything and everything, seemed to know about everything and anything, had a pretty well-developed, kind of generally libertarian point of view, but definitely not... You couldn't define him as a conservative or a liberal or a Republican or a Democrat. Um, Actually, I believe he actually lived in San Antonio at one point growing up. He grew up in a military family. Um, He really was, it wasn't a nickname. He actually was a professor at a number of universities while he was doing talk radio. I am not, and they shouldn't use that nickname. But anyway. but I listened to him, and, and people listen to him, and people of all walks of life uh, tuned him in. And I'll tell you what told me the power of this medium maybe more than anything else. At one point in his career, and this was long after I had met him, so this would have probably been in the 90s, he um, was diagnosed with AIDS, And he had not previously been open about his homosexuality, but he was now. He was very open about AIDS. He was very open about dealing with it, uh, being afraid of it, fighting it. He started working from home because he had very low energy. They let him do that. That was at a time when the technology was not like it is today. You can do a radio show from anywhere today, very easily, very quickly, not so 25, 30 years ago. He um, missed some time on the air. There were periods of time where he couldn't work. They retained him. They kept him. And um, people thought so much of him that that did not stigmatize or damage his uh, listenership. And I'm pointing that out because you might say, well, why should it? But again, just remember the time. It's, we're not talking about 2022. We're talking about 25, 30 years ago. That kind of thing could be a death sentence for a lot of careers, even Friendships. That was how powerful he had built that bond with that audience. And um so when I think about the way radio was, and I'm not hating on radio now. I'm not I, I love talk radio. I think talk radio is very important. I think it's been a a, a great blessing to a lot of people. I don't like everything that, that goes on with it. I don't like everything in every way that it's used. There are some things that have happened in talk radio that are not positive. I have been part of that. I'll take some of the blame for that. But overall, I think it's been a force for good and I think it's been and I think it has a very bright future. I'll pat myself on the back a little bit and say that I'm one of those who is not surprised at how strong and dominant it's become. I always thought it could be bigger than it was back in the day when it was just at night or Just on one station or what have you. I always, I always thought it had a bright future. I always thought it could be the biggest thing in radio. It was the biggest thing for me as a listener to radio. So it's, it's success and its growth hasn't really surprised me. But, but again, I think, I think we stand on the shoulders of people who built an audience and held it without the, the, Needing to be in categories and labels and so forth that we seem to do now. And I think we could eventually see that happen again. So stay tuned to that for that. And, um, I, I, you know, the other thing I, I was thinking about today, just, just real quick, and we'll get to the news is, um, my story is probably like a lot of people in a lot of careers and maybe yours. I could never have planned the ride that I've had, the journey that I've been on. It's been thirty, about thirty-eight years. I, I could not have said to somebody back when I was getting started, "Well, this is how it's going to go, or this is what I think is going to happen." And then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and it will lead to this and lead to that. They'd have thrown a net over me. They said, "You're you're delusional." And even in my own private ambitions and ego, I. I never thought I'd get to do the things I've been able to do and been allowed to do and am allowed to do. So you never know. You, you, you can feel like you're up against the limitations of where you're at in your job or your career path, but you really never know. There is a plan beyond whatever plan you have. There certainly was for me.
3: The once regulations lapse, the government will no longer mandate the wearing of face masks anyway. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, from, from tomorrow, from tomorrow, we will no longer require face masks in classrooms. Yeah. Yeah.
2: kind of weird that we're cheering. <laughs> Yay! Thanks for my freedoms back. You know, that's what's going on in the UK, though. They're just, they're canceling all this, just ending it all ASAP. Uh, Coming up this half hour, the results on our Stevens Roofing Jr. poll question on President Biden's one-year anniversary in office, 210-599-5555. We're talking about uh, radio, National DJ Day, and Roy is on KTSA. Roy, thanks for hanging on. Good afternoon.
0: Hi, Jack. How are you doing today, this evening?
2: Good. Thank you. How are you?
3: I'm doing great, actually. I just want to wish you a happy DJ day. I also Thank you. want to let you know that we are very fortunate to have you here in San Antonio because, like I was telling my wife and my kid and my daughter, Michaela, is if Jack wasn't here. I would still listen to him, tune in wherever you're at because with the wisdom and the attitude you have is the way what we need in order to keep people humble and disciplined when it comes to matters, any kind of matters. It could be about food, it could be talking about regular business, government business, or it could just be regular life business. So. We're thankful, and I wanted to say Happy DJ Day, and also to Trey Ware and also Shondra yeah. that we think about him a lot. So we want to make sure that y'all know that we appreciate you here in San Antonio, and don't forget.
2: Thank you. That's very nice, Roy. Thank you very much for that. I hope you and your family have a good night. Stay warm. Uh, that was very kind of you. Um, yeah, I'll just say this: I, I, I it's been a it's been a great journey. I'm I'm loving it. I've loved it. Um, but I often think when I think about those days when I was a disc jockey, and again, I was a terrible disc jockey, but we, you and I would not know each other were it not for those days. You and I would not know each other. You and I would not have met either over the airwaves or in person or at a listener lunch or in the Alamo Lounge or whatever it might be, or maybe you listen to this show on the On Demand podcast. Um, all these... Relationships, friendships, connections, conversations—all the things I've learned um, would not have been possible without the days when I was a crummy disc jockey, <laughs> and 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 uh, and then just took a, a flying leap at the first chance to get into talk radio. And the funny thing about getting into talk radio, even that was kind of crazy quilt because I I took a job with a station that was it was this giant AM radio station that is celebrating its 100th anniversary right now in fact i'm doing an interview with them next week to mark the 100th anniversary but um they were transitioning from still playing music they did news and traffic and weather and they had it all and they had talk on at night but during the day the hosts would play music but also talk about what was going on in the world and take some calls. We, When I went over there, the Gulf War was happening, and they realized this is the moment to to transition and become a news talk radio station rather than this station that still plays some songs. So they hired me because I could do both. I could... I could be a disc jockey. They were still playing the music. I would be comfortable with that. But I could also do some of the elements of taking calls and interviewing people and stuff like that. So I had that opportunity only because they were in this kind of mixed up, like a foot on each side of the fence kind of thing. You know, that they needed somebody who could kind of do both. And I could kind of do both. So went over there and did that, hoping, hoping that they were gonna keep their word, and we really were gonna swing this thing all the way over to talk radio, which eventually we did. It took a couple of years, but they did. And, um, and so that's how it started. And, um, but I, I had the opportunity to hear people do a kind of radio that isn't being done anymore, but still is the basis for what we are doing. So the the fact that there are so many talk radio spoken word stations, I mean, I'm including now sports talk and all these, th- th- that all exists because of people like Michael Jackson, David Brudnoy, many others. And if you think about radio being about a hundred years old, okay, divided into threes. So the first third of radio's history, radio was used kind of now the way we use television. It was. A lot of entertainment programs. It was soap operas and westerns and variety shows and quiz shows and craft music hall and, you know, tons and tons of early television shows originated as radio shows. So the first third of the radio, of the history of radio, was that. Then the next third was the era of the disc jockey, the era of Elvis and the Beatles and playing, you know, playing recorded music, not performing music live on the radio, but playing recorded music and making the hits and keeping people entertained between the hits and then the last third of those 100 years has really been the heyday of spoken word radio so talk and all news and sports and it'll be interesting to see what the next chunk you know is what it will be how 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 will it change i'm very optimistic about it i'm i'm very bullish on this and um It's going to be interesting to see. And and a lot of the things that I just described uh, were things that just happened. Nobody engineered them, made them happen. I doubt there was anyone, maybe there was, but I doubt there was anyone that absolutely foresaw all this. So you could put the best minds on it, and they wouldn't really be able to tell you for sure what the next 10 or 20 or 30 years are going to bring. But I'm, I'm interested to see it, and I hope I can... Hang on to a little bit of it as well. Um, on the J.R. poll, powered by Stevens Roofing, has President Joe Biden been what you expected a year ago? A year ago today, he took office. Uh, has this been what you were hoping for, fearing, dreading, etc.? 65% said yes. This is the Joe Biden I was expecting. And again, that may be comprised of people that are happy about that or not happy about it. 65% Yes. This is what I expected. 35% no, not what I was expecting. I wonder what they were expecting. Hmm. Anyway, tomorrow, a new JR poll will get started at 4. You can always find the JR poll at KTSA.com. Remember, we talked, uh, I guess it was a night or two ago, about something you have a ridiculous amount of. And one of the things people have a lot of from their youth or what have you is comic books. And I was telling the story of how my mom threw all our comic books away because to her generation, yeah, this was after we grew up and moved out. You know, your parents will say, when you move out, your parents will say, if if they have a big enough house, they'll say, box up your stuff. We'll hang on to it for you until you're ready for it or you want it or you need it. But we know that when you first start out on your own, you're in a tiny apartment. You don't have room for it. So they did that. But then they periodically called <laughs> what they were holding. My parents were not like a, you know, do-it-yourself storage place where you put it in there and it's good. So they got rid of the comic books. I, I, I was thinking of that because I saw this story, a single page of a 1984 Spider-Man comic book just sold for 3.36 million dollars. Not the book, a page. The artwork from page 25 of Marvel Comics Secret Wars number 8, featuring the first time that Spider Man wore a black suit. The record bidding started at around 300,000, eventually going past 3 million at an auction at a comic event in Dallas. One page. And by the way, the comic book was from 1984. I'm sure we had some comic books from 1984, Mom. So just saying, we'd all be set for life. Haven't done that. Um, This is kind of a weird story, but I got to bring it up because it shows you how we're not all one country. You know, there's, there's vast differences from region to region in this country. Dateline Philadelphia. A man in Philadelphia shot three men and killed one from his house while they were attempting to steal his car Tuesday. The man had one of the very, very few licenses to carry a firearm that are very rare in Philadelphia. Three men were attempting to steal his car right out of his driveway. He shot them. Um, suspects crashed a getaway vehicle into another car and, um, were arrested. One of them was taken to the hospital and pronounced dead. The other two not seriously hurt. Been over a hundred carjackings in Philadelphia since January 1st, according to CBS Philadelphia. Now, the reason I point this out is because imagine being a carjacker in a city where you know people don't have guns. And then be, imagine being a carjacker in a city where you know a lot of people do, maybe not most of them, but a lot of them, like here. I really have to think that there must have been a moment of total jaw-dropping surprise. Here you are in a city with, you know, a runaway crime problem like many major cities. Crime's rampant. The numbers are shattering records. Private gun ownership is discouraged, frowned upon, made very difficult or frustrated by the law. And they probably just didn't think there was any chance that the guy who owned the car would would have a gun. See, even if you don't have a gun, and maybe you don't, and I would never tell you to get one. If you don't want one, you shouldn't have one. I mean I'm I'm totally firm about that. But do you realize how protected you are just by the expectation or the calculation that well, in this in this city, in this state, it's a good chance. The, the victim, the target of a crime, will have a gun. And that's that's a difference between San Antonio and Philadelphia. And that's a difference that doesn't have anything to do with the police department or the quality of it or the size of it or any anything else. So do you want to live in a culture where people are presumed to be vulnerable or do you want to live in a culture where people are presumed to be, I don't know, what do you want to say? Not vulnerable. See you back here tomorrow at 4.